Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. The guy laughing over in the corner is uh, Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. I am. Don't let the giggles fool you. <laughs> that guy's educated. Dude, you, you crack me up every time we hang out. Well, I we were trying to stop. figure out how yeah. to get into the podcast. For the past five years, I've been saying... Pro, po, podcast month. No. <laughs> Project <laughs> Recovery, a podcast about addiction, right. more importantly about recovery, because that's what we wanted it to be, is to focus on recovery. Right. Unfortunately, uh, you have to kind of go through the addiction to get there. Well, yeah. But we want this to be a preventative one as well to help you maybe not go down that road. And if you're doing it, was it pre-contemplation? Is that what you're talking about? Sure. And and that's before, could, would you pre-contemplate before an addiction? So people who are in pre-contemplation usually don't really know that they may be having people tell them they ought to watch their drinking or whatever. But I had that. Yeah. But contemplation is when you, you start thinking, well, maybe I maybe I, there's something to that. Maybe I ought to do something about it. Now, if I think back uh, over my 25, 30 years of drinking, I started when I was 14. Right. I quit when I was 45. Yep. Uh, we had some good months. We had some good years and we had some bad months and some really bad years. Uh, and there were certain times uh, that people would say, hey, um, you you really like to drink. And I remember in my brain, I would think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really do. And, you know, and it's crazy because I was at the gym this morning working out and I was thinking five years ago, right before I got sober. And I remember sitting in the rooms of 12 step meetings and sitting there in the recovery house and thinking to myself, how am I going to do this? I cannot imagine a world that I don't get a drink in. I, I, I can't yeah. I can't imagine that it'll be any fun. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that uh, anything good's going to come out of it. I mean, I really did. I was like, they're trying to take away the only fun that I have mm-hmm. because I couldn't control it. But what if I can control it? Yeah. And I told myself that lie many years, you know, and I never could. I can just control it. And then it's not just the fun, but I think a lot of people don't realize they've become addicted to this is their method of stress reduction. It's my reward at the end of a long day. If I'm tired, if I'm stressed, this is how I unwind, Whether whatever their substance is, right? I think you said it best right there, and I considered it my reward. Yeah. It was a reward for a hard day's work. Mm-hmm. It was a reward for getting through a tough conversation. It was a reward for a birth of a child. It was a reward for a birthday, another trip around the sun, if you will, or whatever it may be. It was always a reward. But towards the end, it wasn't a reward. Mm-mm. It was a punishment. Right. It was. It but was, it's still hard to shift that thinking. Like, remember, thoughts lead to feelings, lead to behaviors. Mm-hmm. So that thinking part still trips people up, even though they might start to recognize that life isn't working out well, they're having a hard time letting go of this is my reward. I need it. I'm I'm owed it. Yeah. And, 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 and that's really where my mind started to go is like, I'm owed this. You know, I put up through all this other BS throughout the day, the mm-hmm. year, whatever it may be. I'm owed this. Yeah. This is, this is my relief. This is my reward for enduring all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is it, it wasn't. It was a punishment. And so five years ago, I thought I'd never live in a world where I couldn't have alcohol. Now I can't 
think about living in a world where I have to have alcohol. I, I it would not fit my lifestyle right now. It would not fit it by any any stretch. No, of no, it wouldn't. Uh, our show'd be over, by the way. But <laughs> yeah. um, or you'd be the best guest we ever had. <laughs> um, but what about this? Like, uh, what uh, do you remember the moment? So you're talking about like before you stopped drinking, thinking about like this is my fun. They want to take away my fun, mm-hmm. right? Common thought. Do you remember once you got sober, the first time you realized, wait a second, I'm having fun for real, but I'm sober? Yeah. I mean, I had glimpses of fun, and that's what they try to do in recovery for me. Like, I remember past recovery, like once you left recovery, because that's a, I mean, recovery is great, but it's an artificial environment, just like the hospital is. You know, we can all get better in those places for a while. But once you were out on your own, do you remember the first time or one of the first times when you were like, oh, you know, I'm genuinely happy and having fun and I'm not drinking? Yeah. It was a ski day with my kids. Yeah. And uh, I used to dread ski days with my kids because if you've ever had to get three kids ready to go up on a freezing cold <laughs> mountain and make sure they got all their boots and all their gloves, it was it was a lot. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And uh, I, I would drink. And it, it would Which help. always made it easier, right? No, <laughs> but I thought it did, but it would right. help me get through the day. And yeah. because I felt like I had to do this, but I wasn't authentically, genuinely there. You weren't. You can't be present when you're drinking. And I remember right. sitting on top of the mountain and I looked to the left and there's my son Bowden and he's got goggles on and they're only half on because at that time he had glasses as well. So it's like <laughs> half a glass is hanging out of a goggle. They're a little askewed. Totally picture and, and I look over him and he, and he just, and he, he can't say anything. He's got one of those mouth guards on. He just gives me a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. I look to the right and there's my two daughters and they got their helmets on and I looked at them and they gave me thumbs up and I remember feeling so happy inside that this was a thing that I get to do now. Because before, I didn't think I would ever get that opportunity again. Yeah. And we were genuinely having a good time. And I remember, I mean, I'm getting a little, but I remember just skiing down the mountain and sitting there over a plate of loaded fries with cheese and chili and all that good stuff and thinking, how lucky Mm -hmm. am I that I get to do this? And before, it's I felt like I had to do this. I had to check these boxes. I had to take them up and and give them this. But I felt like I was... It felt effortful, and and I think a lot of that's because when a person's drinking or otherwise intoxicated, they're not present. They're not there, and if you're not present, you can't connect with people. And so you might have a lot of people are doing things with their kids, but are they really connecting with the kids? So I think you're what you're describing to me. I would say is like an emotional connection that and, you weren't having before. In years past, we would have got the loaded fries and we would have done skiing. Sure, but we'd have pulled into the the lodge. I would have got the loaded fries. I'd have set them on the table, and then I would have walked around the corner to the bar and ordered a beer and a shot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would have missed them guys fighting over fries. I would have missed them guys laughing uh, and talking about wrecks they had on the mountain. And then I came back and said, "Are you guys done? Let's go!" And we'd go up again. And I wasn't authentically, genuinely there. Yeah. And so I think that, and I think most of the time I look back and the happiness that I've genuinely had is around my girlfriend, around my family, and my kids. And uh, before, I would use alcohol to get me through those times. Yeah, yeah. It, which is insane to say, but it was the truth. Yeah, isn't that interesting how the mindset shifts, right? From thinking, I'm owed this, this is my reward, this is the only way I can be happy, uh, this is the way I relax, to the opposite, which is I'm present, I'm connected, and and that alcohol would actually take all that away. 
it's that mindset shift that comes with sobriety. It's a beautiful thing. And it, 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 and it's I'm just very blessed and grateful uh, that I get to be in this world and I get to do the things I get to do. So when people go, do you think you'll ever drink again? I go, I don't think I will. I never say I won't because we've talked about that before. Yeah. It, it just doesn't work in my mindset. But I don't think so because the world I have right now and the life I get to live, I'm so grateful and I'm so blessed and fortunate to be able to do what I do that it doesn't it doesn't fit in my lifestyle. It, do, it Nothing in a 12-ounce can is going to make my life any better than it is right now. Yeah. And I know that it'll only take away. And unfortunately, I'm selfish and I don't want to give up what I've got. Well, sometimes it's good to be selfish. And uh, I'm very grateful. And I'm grateful for our guests who every week come in and are willing to share their story. Yep. Now, we've got an amazing story today. Her name is Lindy Murray. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, fabulous. Uh, we want to find out a little bit about you. But before we do, Lindy, how long have you been sober? Uh, I've been sober four years. But you've got a, a, a little something that helps you stay sober. What that, is that? That's right. I do. I smoke marijuana. Um, I've smoked marijuana since probably about a year and a half. Of, since I was sober about a year and a half before I started doing that. Um, so yeah. what we're going to do is we're going to tell you Lindy's story. We're going to talk about her recovery. And when we talk about recovery here on the podcast, and I talk about my recovery because it's my recovery. It makes sense to me, and it helps me stay sober. We're to find out what Lindy's recovery looks like and what helps her stay sober. And I want you to keep an open mind. I want you to sit back and enjoy the ride. You're listening to Project Recovery. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today is Lindy Murray. She's been sober four years, uh, but she smokes a little weed. Is it just a little weed or a lot of weed? Uh, it's not a little. <laughs> so probably. So, so there's one I, other I option. smoke every day. Every yeah. day? Yeah. And you have a medical marijuana card? I do. And when you go to talk to the doctor about getting a medical marijuana card, like I've, I've talked to people before and they said insomnia, bad back, uh, sore joints. Uh, what did you tell the doctor? Bad back. Do you have a bad back? No. It's okay. You're, no. I mean, no, you're all right. No. <laughs> but I, I, I use it more as a, a mental health aid than a physical health aid. Now, if you've ever listened to the podcast before, you know Dr. Matt uh, talks about weed. And <laughs> on my tombstone, Dr. Matt talked talks about it. weed. Okay, well, marijuana <laughs> and the medicinal effects of it. And also the, the. Well, it's just really interesting to me because we live in a day and age that's so much different than when we were growing up in the 80s and 90s, right? Like, you know, then it was illegal everywhere and there was a war on drugs and there was a lot of misinformation then. Reefer madness. Reefer madness, yeah. Now we have kind of done this almost 180 with many states having it legal for either uh, recreational and or medicinal. Mm -hmm. And there's still a lot of misinformation, like what does it do? But the good news is research is happening and we're starting to learn, you know, what are the benefits and what are not the benefits of weed. So now yeah, I, I am interested in it because also um, many of my patients are uh, using it. Um, and uh, it's pretty much available everywhere to minors, to young kids. And I think they, they get a lot of misinformation, too. I was talking to my daughter, who is now a freshman at the University of Utah. And uh, we talked about this earlier on a podcast. She's in a sorority? She's not in a sorority. Okay. And I wanted her to, but she's like, yeah, Dad, it's not my style. I, I'm with her. Yeah, and I, and yeah. I get it. I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, I was in a fraternity, and I, I loved know. it, and those guys are still my friends. Yeah, you were 
just play Nickelback before we started the yeah. show. Yeah. My nickname in college was Fun Pig. Because <laughs> Fun Pigs never say no. See Money. No, See Money was in high school. Oh. Fun Pig. Fun Pig. You upgraded. Well, I've been Sea Money, Fun Pig, Helmet, and Scott Dog. <laughs> I don't want to know why you're Helmet. Well, it's because my hair looked like a helmet when I was in football days. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, okay. That's so, anyways, and I was talking to my daughter, and, and I was like, is alcohol, you know, a big deal for kids your age? And she goes, you know, Dad, it, not so much. Not as much, yeah. It's most people are vaping. Uh, THC. Know, yeah. Yep. And, and or, or edibles, if you will. Edibles are really popular, yeah. And so I don't think they do that, uh, but we're digressing. So I wanted to get back to Lindy Murray, and she yes. says that marijuana helps her in her recovery. But before we find out about that, mm-hmm. where does the story of Lindy Murray begin? Um, my addiction story started when I was 16. I started drinking. And, you know, throughout the years, I, I drank a lot and eventually started using pills and drugs and um, heroin and do you remember at uh, 16 why you started drinking? Was it uh, we've had people on the podcast who said they had anxiety, they didn't fit in or they were just plain curious. Why did you start it's drinking? Just, it's what it's what we did. I, I was born in a small town or raised in a small town and that what you got drunk or you got pregnant and I don't have any kids. <laughs> so. Specialized in the other, huh? Yeah, yeah. What, what was your family culture like? Do you have a lot of siblings? Was have, drinking part of your family culture? Yeah, I have a little sister. Uh, my mother, my mom didn't drink a whole lot when we were young, but she did drink. My stepdad drinks quite a bit. Uh, my father was an alcoholic, so. So with that, run, did you know as a teenager that dad was an alcoholic? I did, I did. Yeah. How did and, your parents talk? Did they talk about it or was that just something you observed? Yeah, they did. Um, it was talked about because they separated when I was still pretty young and I knew why. And I knew that he had, he was sick. You know, that's what they told me when I was a kid. Um, and I knew that it was pre predispositioned in me. Like mm. they had, my mom had said that, hey, this comes from both sides of your family. I have grandparents on my mom's side. Um, and I just didn't, I mean... I was 16. I'm like, okay. But that's, but you know, that's pretty great that your mom tried to educate you about that. Cause that's one of the things we talk about on the show is that, you know, conversations make a big difference. Those, Mm -hmm. you know, advertisements about talk to your kids, they, that there's actually research that supports that that helps. But when you're 16, you, we, most of us think we're invincible and that won't bother me. And I was better. I think I was better able to recognize when it did become a problem. Hmm. Like, because I'm like, oh, this is how unhealthy people drink. And that's what I'm doing okay. now. You know so what I mean? So that education was helpful eventually. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. It just at the time. <laughs> yeah. But you're 16, so you started drinking. Uh, you said drinking a lot. And that led you to pills. What made you do the drum, jump from drinking to pills? Uh, well, my father passed away in 2015. And uh, the person I was dating at the time, you know, we just partied a lot. That's what, that's what we did. And there was pills at a party. And I started. I said, okay. I was in a really vulnerable spot, and I didn't want to feel what I was feeling anymore. And do you remember the first time you took pills? And was it like an (laughs) aha moment? Uh, Did the clouds open up? Because when we've had people describe it that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my face kind of just lit up. Do you remember the first time you took pills? And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I do. And I won't ever forget it because I chased it for years, you know. And so you started taking pills, um, and then did that lead you in other directions, or how long did you keep pills going for? I only I used pills for a couple months, um, but they are expensive. I was taking oxys, and they were selling really uh, expensive on the street, so I switched to heroin pretty quickly. Okay, now that's interesting because I, 
It's almost always a financial reason why people switch from pills to heroin. But I'm curious about, I think where Casey was going with mm-hmm. that is like, like in your mindset, like, you know, a pill, it, it comes in a bottle from the pharmacy. Like, even though we know we've, we're buying it illegally or doing it, it feels a little more legit. Heroin is, has just this whole culture ominously. Now, this is going to sound weird, but pills seem like a healthier drug. Yeah, that's what I'm hitting. 100%. I'm getting these drugs from a doctor. They're making them in a lab. I mean, my friend gave them to me, but I mean, you know, they're they're legit, right? This is not black tar heroin that was smuggled across the border in some guy's butt. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Well, I mean, I don't know how it gets here. I've, I watch Narcos. I think you're right. Um, so I was, we were sick. I was sick, and we were trying to get pills. So even after sick. three months, you were already dope sick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because we were, we were smoking pills every day. And um, then drinking on top of that, I just wasn't healthy in the first place. Um, but we, it, it, I wasn't dope sick the way that I remember now, but I was sick to the point that it was like, we've got to find something. It was that fight or flight. Like, I need, I, we're, we've got to survive this day, and how are we going to do that? Because we couldn't find pills. And um, it's like, well, so-and-so has black. And I'm like, what is that? And the the guy I was with, he says, that's heroin. It's a lot cheaper, and it's going to hit a lot harder. And I said, I mean, all right. here right. We're already down here. We're in this city. You know, we drove to the city to pick up. And yeah, yeah. Okay, now you vividly remember the first time you took pills. Mm-hmm. Do you have the same memory of the first time you took heroin? Not, not really. I mean, I, I can't like place that very first time. You know, I can't put myself in this situation and remember it, but I can remember it with the pill, because uh, it was like that first, that first time. So when you when when you started using heroin, uh, before we get to that, what was your family life at home up to this point? Had anybody said, "Hey, Lindy, what's going on"? Um, no, not with drinking or anything. No, I didn't present like an alcoholic, you know, I was functioning and whatever. I just drank on the weekends and drank excessively when I did it. Um, and people were expecting me to be sad. You know, I had like this excuse as to why I was always laying around or why I didn't have the motivation to go to work or whatever. So when I was using, it was like, well, I mean, her dad just passed away. You know, of course she's going to act depressed and sad, but really I was sick and I was, you know, doing all sorts of other things. Okay. So you, you start your journey with heroin. Um, are you smoking it? Are you? Yeah, I'm smoking. I was never an intravenous user. I'm afraid of needles. You're using heroin. Are you using it daily? Yes. Yeah. And how do you afford heroin? If you know, I mean, I mean, eventually it's got to get a lot cheaper than those pills. It is. Um, and I would hold a job for a little bit, like I would have jobs for weeks at a time or, uh, the guy I was working with or the guy I was with would hold jobs for a little bit of time. Um, but we start, I mean, we started doing criminal things a lot, selling, pawning, all sorts of stuff. And then when does that, uh, come to a head? Uh, you, you know, off air, you told me you've been to three different treatment centers. When was the first time you went? Can, can I, yes. can I pause that question? Cause it- Excellent question. Thank you. Yeah. But um, I'm one, also wondering about kind of, uh, were you getting any help for your mental health? Obviously, you were grieving and you had lost your father. And, you know, I think that with heavy drug or alcohol use comes depression, anxiety uh, that often just gets, you know, pushed down because you're using. 
So I'm just kind of curious how you describe, first of all, how old of a person were you about that time when your father passed? I was 21. Okay. And how would you describe kind of like the mental health side of things for you? I had received a little bit of mental health uh, help when I was younger because I was an angry teenager. Um, (laughs) But at the time, I wasn't seeing anybody. I wasn't talking to anybody. It just, you know, it just was something that happened. And then just trying to manage it yourself. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's kind of what I thought just Mm -hmm. because you're kind of this part of your story giving off a little bit of a desperate vibe, like yeah. you're, you're willing to try anything to numb the pain. And, and I think that's understandable because when we're going through depression and grief, it, it's a miserable feeling. And I don't blame people for wanting to run away from that. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, sometimes the things we run to are more dangerous than just dealing with the grief and depression. But yeah, okay, unpause. So you're running and gunning, you're on the streets, you're holding down jobs sometimes weeks at a time, all to feed your fix of heroin. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've said off air that you've been to three different treatment facilities. Yeah. What brought you to the first one? Um, The first one was mostly family influence. Um, You know, they're changing the locks, they're not going to answer my phone calls, et cetera. You know, you need to find some help or you're, we're not going to continue this like relationship that we have with you pretty much so somewhat of an intervention yeah yeah kind of like an intervention and they said if you don't get help we're going to change the locks right so did you reluctantly agree to the treatment center yeah we went and toured it um and the guy that was showing i said okay i'll be back on monday he said there's no way there's no way that girl's coming back here and i showed back up on monday somehow um but it was a lot of uh family my sister my mom and how long did you spend in that first treatment? 60 days. 60 days. And what kind of treatment did they do? Did you talk to a psychologist? Did you do processing? Did you go to yeah. different meetings? What modalities did they use? Yeah, we did. Um, it was 12-step based, so we did a lot of 12-step work in-house. But we also went to meetings. We had therapy with the group. We had family therapy, uh, processing with the family, individual sessions, just the whole, all of it. <laughs> and what was your first thought? I mean, because we often say on the podcast, if they don't want it, it's never going to take. Yeah, I I really wanted to want it because I didn't like, I mean, I hated myself. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like what I was doing. Um, and I'm really, I'm lucky that my family never believed that that's like who I was. They knew that whoever was acting out and being this like addict wasn't the person that I'm actually am. Um, but I just, I was, I was willing once I got there, I think I was pretty willing. You graduate after 60 days, uh, you go back into the real world. What does that look like? Uh, sober living, I started with sober living and outpatient treatment. So I went, you know, every day for several hours a day. I wasn't really working. I was at the sober living, which has like a curfew and testing and all those things. But you relapsed. Yeah, I yeah, I moved back home to my small town, which was full of the same people um, and the same problems, and everybody was still getting drunk. And so I just I got drunk again, and that eventually led right back to uh, heroin. So how long were you out on this journey? Oh, the second time around, was it was pretty. I was running and gunning for a good long while, and I only went back to treatment for a couple weeks because it was like, it was kind of like a 
Um, Refresher course? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to quit drinking. I, and I told him that. I'm like, I'm not going to stop drinking. So if you want me to go back in there, okay. But, you know, um, it was a, what is that? When they make you or, or else. Forced choice. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, you know. So you go back in for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and after two weeks, do you check yourself out or do they tell you? Yeah. I left AMA against medical Ultimatum. Advice. That's what you were Ultimatum. After. That is there the word go. I was yeah. thinking of. And then, and then you leave AMA, which is against medical advice. Yeah. And that's where the therapist, and I've been in a treatment facility where somebody leaves AMA. Yeah, and, that, that happens at the psychiatric hospitals and oh, any hospital, really. Yeah. Well, and, and so I think that's important to talk about real quick before we get back to Lindy's story is, you know, parents, when I was working at the recovery center, would be like, hey, you got to keep my kid. I go, I, we can't. Uh, it's illegal. If they want to leave, they can leave whenever they want. And yeah. so they'll do their best to keep them here. You'll get people on the phone. You'll get a therapist. I mean, and it, it, there's usually, you know, trying to when a person wants to leave against medical advice and they're an adult, uh, typically, unless there's we can prove that they're going to be a danger to someone, which or is themselves. a 5150. Yep. 5150 Van Halen. And uh, if we can prove that, we can sometimes have a judge order a stay for a period of time. But to be honest, that doesn't happen as often as you think it might. Usually it's just a, a real caring group. The, the treatment team will sit down with the person and try to explain, listen, we, the, these are the reasons why we'd like you to stay and these are the things we can do for you. Um, trying to force a person to stay usually we know doesn't ever, you're just in that same position after the, the judge order, the court order runs out. So it, it's real sad. I've been on that side of it when I used to work inpatient and it, you know, you feel sort of like a failure as a, as a clinician and you feel worried about your, your patient that's going to leave. Because but, if they walk out, I mean, usually yeah. bad stuff is about to happen. Yeah. They're usually leaving because either their mental health hasn't been appropriately treated and so they're not in their best mind or they're, you know, beeline it for drugs, going, you know, they're headed right to the liquor store or someplace like that. So it's a, it's a really, it's a tough situation for everybody. But from your point of view, why did, why do you feel like you pushed through that medical advice and left? Um, cause I knew I wasn't done at that point. I, cause I, like I had said, I was drinking mm-hmm. and I wanted to keep drinking. And I wanted to, I wanted to be able to drink. <laughs> because drinking wasn't your problem. Right. I mean, it was, of course. Back, <laughs> I just didn't know it yet. Well, it sounds like it was sort of a gateway for you to get back into yeah. the harder drugs. Yeah, easily. Yeah. And so they sit you down. They tell you, we don't think it's a good idea for you to leave. You tell them you don't care. Yeah, I said, cool. And busted right out. Mm-hmm. And where did you go? I just went to the streets. And I'm, I, don't, I don't think I even drank. I think I went straight for drugs. Mm. You know, I remember in my brain knowing that I wasn't done drinking, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's what I did when I left. And you went now to the I streets and it, yeah. you got drugs. And so then how long are you out on this run? Um, several years. I was just, you know, running and gunning and trying to trying to do whatever, sleeping in my car, sleeping on couches. I don't, you know, the whole, the whole nine. <laughs> What's that life look like? I know you say it's hard and you kind of just gloss over it. Yeah. But I mean, three years living on the streets, living in your car, <clears throat> sleeping on people's couches. You know, what goes through your mind? Um, looking back on it, it's, I just am so sad for that girl, you know, 
and um, I, I had nothing uh, pushing me to want anything better. You know, I was ready to just like be out there and die like that pretty much. So I, there was no um, want to like find a place to live or find a good job or, you know. Sounds like you were just in survival mode. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You, you said something earlier about like not liking yourself, so mm-hmm. something to that effect. And as I think that's such a common theme when a person is on the run, they're homeless, they're using drugs and alcohol, it just destroys your self-esteem that confidence and identity that you have. And so it's really interesting. You'd think maybe from an outsider's point of view that when a person feels low self-esteem, low confidence, that they would get busy building themselves back up. But it's almost always the opposite, right? You become um, at least passively kind of suicidal, like not caring what happens to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of getting the house and getting the job and cleaning up, it kind of goes the opposite direction. It's like, this is who I am. And yeah, this is what and I'll just whatever there. happens to me. So you stop caring about yourself because mm-hmm. you're that self-love, self-compassion is is gone. I'm curious if this ever happened to you because it happened to me when I was handcuffed to a gurney in a hospital and I saw my reflection in the mirror and I couldn't recognize the person staring back at me. Yeah, I remember because um, I, I mean, I used all sorts of substances. Heroin was my... My DOC? like DOC. I eventually started using crack. I use meth sometimes. Um, and I remember standing in the mirror in a bathroom. The lights were off, but it was like it was light enough to see myself. And I was there. I don't know how long I was there. I was there for hours just staring and like crying and looking at these these pick marks on my face and not knowing who this was or how like how to fix her or how you got there. Yeah. How it happened. So you're on the streets, living on couches, living in your car for, uh, what'd you say, about three years? Yeah, two years. Uh, were any contact with your parents? I was I was in contact with my mom almost always. One thing she did do is keep my phone on. Um, I was really lucky that way with the way that she supported me because she learned a lot. She had learned through my dad, and then as soon as I started having a problem, she went and got, um, you know, education. Mm-hmm. So she was... She kept my phone on, but she didn't. Uh, she didn't give me money. She didn't do stuff like that. But probably for a peace of mind for herself, 100%. you know, for you to call in time of need, or at mm-hmm. least to know a little you, lifeline. Yeah, that yeah. I was alive. So, what brings you to the third and final treatment center? So the the last time I went to treatment was the end of 2019, and uh, man, I was just tired. My heart was tired. I was tired. I was afraid. I knew. At that point, I knew that if I didn't get sober right now, then I'm going to die out here. And that's just what I'm going to do. So it was, you know, it was, um, it really was a life and death situation at this point. And I felt that in my heart too. So I had to do something. We've had many people on the podcast who said uh, before they got sober, they were sick and tired of being sick and tired. I mean, the game had just run its course. Yeah. Uh, and you come to that, that, that final decision. Either I get help or I die. Mm-hmm. And what's that like when that actually processes through your brain that you go, this is it. I've got two choices. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was, I don't, I've never been more afraid because I knew I had to make changes and I didn't know what that was going to look like or how hard it was going to be. I knew it was going to be harder than anything else I had ever done, you know? Um, so I was really, really afraid. I don't think I've ever been that scared 
of something. I was scared to go into the building. So who do you call? Where do you go? My mom. I called my mom. <laughs> and just... I, I said, I got to go. So I got to do something. And she showed up um, the very next morning and she uh, helped call some of the contacts that we had. Um, and we just got in. I managed to get a scholarship in because I had just turned 26. Or, yeah, I just turned 26. So I didn't have, I wasn't on my mommy's insurance anymore. Um, yeah. So you check into a treatment for, uh, center. Mm-hmm. How many days do you do in there? In that one I did, I only did 30 days in that last one. What was different about this time? I, I finally wanted it. I finally wanted to stop being that like person. But know? was it, is it easy as just saying, I finally wanted it? Were you still hesitant, no. resistant? Yeah. The, I want, I, the hardest part I think was the self-love part of it. And in this last treatment center, I finally took that seriously. I did what they told me to do. I, I didn't ask questions. They said, look in the mirror and say, I love you. And I'm like, that's stupid, but I'm going to do it. So I did it, you know, and I just, I did what I was told and I followed, um, the program and I, I just, um, I, I worked really hard in there. I put a lot of work in while I was there. Um, but yeah, it wasn't as easy as just being like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm good now, you know? But I think that, I think, I mean, you can correct me if this doesn't apply to you, but I think that there's an underlying commitment that's lacking until you say, I want it. Yeah. You might be just as scared and the work is going to be hard, but I do think that's what gets a person through is feeling that desperate, you know, rock bottom feeling of like, I've got to do something and I really want to be better. Mm-hmm. And I think that underlying emotional commitment to that is what gets you to do the silly things like look in the mirror and say, I love you because you're thinking, well, how could that help? And, you know, when all these silly things they have me do, you know, my drug problems, but you know, you, you do those things because you're, you've got a commitment to yourself and to, to being sober. And, and that's, I think the fuel that's missing in treatment you know, when people relapse. One of the things we did when I was in treatment, uh, we started our day with intentions mm-hmm. and we ended it with gratitude. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I remember nice. sitting in this house with 15 other addicts, uh, knowing that I lost my job, possibly going to jail, uh, lost all these things. And they want you to sit down and write three things you're grateful for. You lost that cool podcast with your friend. Matt. Yeah, I lost yeah. that podcast with Dr. Matt. Yeah. Uh, but they go, now you're three things you're grateful for. And I'm like, well, and, and it was tough. Yeah. It was oh, yeah. tough to come up with three. Because you're so focused on all the problems yeah. and the stress and the trauma that you've been through. But then you start to realize, I'm grateful for this opportunity to be in this house. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful to sit on this couch. I'm grateful that I had a hot meal. I'm grateful that I know my kids are okay right now. And then you start to build upon that. And so those little silly things of looking yourself in the mirror and telling yourself, I love you, start to build <laughs> because you realize that you there are is stuff around that you can build upon. And that's kind of what it is. And so after 30 days, you graduate. Mm-hmm. Where do you go? Um, I At that time, I had uh, an apartment with a couple of friends, and they uh, kept it for me. So I went back and moved in back in with them. It was in um, Utah County, and that's where I found recovery in the first place. So I was hitting a lot of meetings. And um, by this point, I've been to treatment enough, and I'd seen – a lot of therapists. So I knew what to do. I knew the the tools that I needed to use and I finally was willing to use them. And so you start using these tools and you start to get a little sobriety underneath your belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you come up on a year and a half. Yeah. 
and you decided to add a new tool. Yeah. <laughs> which is, which is, this is your recovery. I don't want you to feel like I'm coming at you or anything, right, yeah. but you say that um, marijuana has really helped you in your recovery. Mm-hmm. Tell me how, how and why. Um, first, I think it's important to note that I didn't smoke weed, but when I was using other things, I didn't like it. I, it made me feel paranoid. Um, you know, it never was a thing for me until after I got sober and after I had been abstinent from all substances for a while that I chose to start um, using it. A lot of the people that I knew were smoking. Um, and what I found it did for me is when I when you hit that spot where you're kind of spiraling and the only focus is like the drug or the problem that you're having, you know, whatever it is, weed kind of allowed me to zoom out and... Um, just changed my perspective a little bit. Oh, I was looking to you because I thought yeah. you had something lock and loaded. No, no, not at all. I'm actually, I appreciate you sharing your experience with that. So you feel like in those, so a year and a half is is both a lot of sobriety and not very much, right? right. Like it's kind of that awkward in between time. Like when, when you're growing your hair out. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do. I think it's a little more serious than that, but not, you know, I mean. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's not long, but it's not short. It's not it's long, just, but it's, it's not short. Awkward. You it's don't just, know how to do it. It's, it's real awkward. It's kind of fluffy. Yeah. A, it was a good analogy. It, it was great. Was a helmet I love looks, looks kind of like the a helmet. helmet. Yeah. yeah helmet's that's what back. I had. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we all had curls like you. But um, but, but what was going on that made you feel like I need something more than my, you mentioned you went to meetings yeah. and you, you know, what, what so, yeah. um, I think there, I would never say anything bad about AA. It's what taught me how to be sober and like be a person in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of culture there that's like, this is what we do and we do it every day and you're going to have to do this for the rest of your life. And, uh, you know, there's, it's just very militant. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, it's highly structured. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, um, not that structure was structure was always good for me. I just well, you mentioned that phrase. This is what you do for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I've found that that whether it's we're talking about mental health treatment or substance abuse treatment or almost anything, when you feel like oh, I have, I have to. to do something for the rest of my life in order to be okay, people instead of grasping onto that, a lot of people push away, mm-hmm. and I've seen that in therapy too. That's why a lot of times if a person is hesitant to ever go in and start talking with a therapist, I remind them, you know, you could just go for two visits or four. You don't have to go for the rest of your life. And they're like, well, I know. But emotionally, we kind of wonder, am I going to have to be committed to something for the rest of my life? And I've heard lots of people say pretty much what you just said, where they're like, I appreciate what AA did for me, but I couldn't commit to like this idea of having to be in meetings every day for the rest of my life. There's also this... um where I was at was a lot of young recovery because there was a lot of treatment centers. So it's a lot of people that just, you know, are fresh out of rehab or have a couple months or whatever. And a lot of those same people are going to the meetings too. So I'm kind of reaching this spot where I'm getting uncomfy again in my skin. I'm starting to experience some of that like post withdrawal stuff, you know, and I'm thinking a lot more about drugs. I'm having using dreams, things like that. And there's not a whole lot of people at the, at the meeting that are relating to me. Mm. You know, there's the people that have a couple months and there's people that have 40 years. And I'm like, what do, what do I do here? Mm. You know, so it just, um, yeah, I was having a hard time finding that, like the relation that I needed that I had when I first got to AA, I the, guess. The community. Yeah. Had changed yeah. The a connection. Little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So how do you feel marijuana helps you every day? Um, so I, I smoke probably about a joint a day. Um, how did you get the idea, though? Like, OK, I, you just set it up perfectly to be like, I felt kind of in between. My hair's not long or short. Um, I, my community has shifted. I'm not quite feeling the benefit. I'm having these dreams and urges. Mm-hmm. So how how did the idea come like, eh, maybe I'll try marijuana? Because I, I think a lot of people would, would not want to go towards another substance that well, it's, it's not a new idea. I mean, people have been doing it for years. They call it Cali Sober. Uh, you know, they don't. They, they, I mean, it's a real thing. Yeah. Demi Lovato would would tout it. That was her recovery. She was Cali Sober, and it was like I, I smoke marijuana. And so you're a big Debbie Lovato fan. <laughs> yeah, I love her. Love them. No, I'm just kind of curious how that came to be like an idea that you thought. Um, you'd some try. of the people that I was around were smoking and also in recovery, and it wasn't presenting any problems for them, you know? Okay. Um, did you have conversations with him before you tried it or did you try it then have conversations? I had conversations before because I, I was like, I don't even, I don't like it. It makes me feel weird, but it didn't anymore, you know? Suddenly it was uh, not paranoid, it was relaxed. So you say you smoke a joint a day uh, and it, it just helps you manage the day? Does it help you end the day? Is it a reward? I, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, to, well... Quite frankly, I just feel like I'm more pleasant. I'm just a happier person in, that's existing out in this world because life feels so crazy and so stressful and the world right now is so scary um, that it's like when if I, if I don't smoke, all of that stuff starts to come to my brain. I don't want to make it sound like I have to yeah. um, because I don't. You know, I, I'll, I'll go, to, go days without smoking. Um, but it, yeah, it just kind of quiets the whole world down. A little bit helps manage the day. So it sounds like part of that is managing the anxiety uh-huh. in kind of how you think. Yeah. Um, would you say you're one of those people that has kind of the brain that doesn't turn off at night and the worries kind of stack up? Yeah. And I think a lot of people in recovery start to um, uh, develop some of this anxiety or some of these, like I have the, you know, OCD tendencies and things like that, that I've developed since I've been sober. And I think it happens to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah it does. And in fact, we've talked on the show about, you know, we as a young person growing up, an adolescent, young adult, we learn our coping skills. Yeah. But if you start using substances like drinking at 16 or 14, like Casey did, then that can start to become like you're, you're a one trick pony. You're like, well, that's how I manage my stress. So you think, OK, great, I'm going to get sober. I'm not going to have that anymore. But now it's sort of like I'm dealing with the world without coping skills and so that can be daunting uh, anxiety provoking absolutely now you say something like that because you know for the longest time alcohol was my only coping Mm -hmm. tool uh it's the way i rewarded and punished myself um Mm -hmm. now i use the gym now i use golf now i use you know talking to a therapist i you know i mean i've got more tools in my belt that i never had before right and and so i can see this as a tool for her yeah and so once again, I, I want to, this is your recovery mm-hmm. and I'm proud of you. And you. to see all you've gone through and seeing here now, what is the life, what does your life look like now? Um, I, I live on my own. I have a, a cute little space that's all mine and um, it feels really safe. I make my bed every day, just like I did in treatment. Um, I have, I have a little kitty, a nice job. I have health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> I am insured on my car, you know, all of the, 
I'm a triple threat with the car. I've got the license, insurance, registration. Wow. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. So I dare them to pull me over. I really, I'm, I live a pretty normal life, you know, and my relationships with my family have been, not that, I mean, they were damaged. They were very damaged and they just, I, I spend a lot of time with them. I'm around them all the time. These, uh, these days I live very close to them and they've been repaired, you know, I'm closer to my family than I ever have been. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but do you remember uh, them telling you, uh, imagine what you want your sobriety to look like in five years? Yeah. What did you want yours to look like in five years? Oh, gosh. I wrote myself a letter. I'm going to have to find that. (laughs) I wrote myself a letter of what I thought it would look like. Um, But this, I mean, not this. But do you think your life is better than you imagined it to be? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I, I don't know really what I imagined. It was, it was some, hard to see any type of future. There you go. I was just going to say, I think a lot of people lowball themselves yeah. when they get asked that question in treatment, like five years and they're like, oh, I'll have shoes. Right. You know, <laughs> like, like they, they, the bar is pretty low, but then you start living a life of recovery and you realize, wow, there's so much more life available to me than I really gave myself credit for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I look at a beautiful, confident young lady and somebody who's rocking their recovery and doing wonderful. And as a one addict to another, I know what you've gone through. I might not know exactly, but I know the feelings. I know the darkness. I know the isolation. I know the the tears. Uh, And to see you standing here today and willing to share your story, I'm grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Matt, what are your thoughts on Lindy? Uh, first of all, I'll just echo his statements. It takes a lot of courage and uh, it's a it's a selfless act, I think, to come on this show and, and share your story because other people are going to really benefit from hearing how you've gone through your process. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious, other than uh, using marijuana to help you avoid those spirals, do you have other practices or regular things you do? Yeah. I know you're close with your family, but is there anything more? Yeah, I still see a therapist mm-hmm. um, a couple times a month. Uh, I really like to read and write, and I've started doing some you know, art and things like that, something that just gets me to be present in mm-hmm. the moment. Kind of mindfulness activity. Yeah, yeah, meditation, stuff like that. I'm not great at meditating. A lot of times meditating looks like painting to me, you know, because yeah. I'm there. Well, I think I creative activities. So you might want to check out the book Flow okay. by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. That's his name. Bless you. I yep. can remember Flow. Flow. Yeah, I remember Flow. <laughs> okay. Uh, I I just like to say the name because it took me a while to practice it. So I so like you're to the whip kind it of guy out. That would practice once that name. I'm yeah. like Lindy. I'm like Flow's the name of the book. Yeah. <laughs> Google but it. The idea of Flow comes out of research on happiness. What makes people really happy? To make a long story short, what they found was that there are about eight factors that bring us into the moment. It's a very mindful approach. And when we're painting or we're doing other things like that, Mm -hmm. problem solving, being creative, that's often when we feel the most at peace and therefore the the happiest, most content. And so uh, absolutely your painting or journaling or writing, those things absolutely count as a mindful meditative activity that can create this concept of flow. So uh, I actually don't recommend tons of books to people because um, I don't know, There, a lot of books seem like a waste of time. Flow would be one of those books everybody should read. I love it. I'll check it out. 
Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for sharing your story. And I think you're going to help a lot of people. And uh, good luck in the future. And I can't wait to see what you do. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. We are grateful for you who tune us in every week. It's that podcast that we call Project Recovery. <laughs> I like what you're doing. <laughs> I, I really don't. I, <laughs> but in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. Have you ever made a long Fun story big. short? <laughs> Fun big. <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.